Hello, and welcome to Lessons in Life podcast. In this podcast, we talk to the self-described radical lawyer Michael Mansfield QC, one of Britain's best-known barristers. During his career, Michael has represented some of the highest profile cases in UK legal history, from the Birmingham Six, the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry, the shooting of John Charles de Menezes, and the Hillsborough Inquiry. I must apologise for the lack of introduction to this conversation, but as soon as Michael and I got on the line, we started talking about the only thing on everybody's lips at the moment, the COVID pandemic. And, and what I say is, and I say it because, you know, I feel it too, that it's given me, given all of us, an opportunity to reappraise, you know, what we're about and what we're doing and why we're doing it. And actually some people are thinking, well, what on earth was I doing getting up every morning at the same time, rushing, blah, 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 blah. So it's the sort of routine stuff. And you suddenly think, I don't need to do it this way. And of course, in terms of court hearings, I mean, the system is waking up to the fact that there are more efficient ways of doing some of it, not all of it, some of it. It doesn't all have to be done in a regimented way. It can be done in a, in a more flexible way. And you don't have to drag people all around the country all the time. But for some things you do. But um, it's a question of, uh, I think, reconfiguring how we work and how we live. Yes. And and I think that we should not be afraid of that. Whilst, of course, the threat of death is around the corner, but then it nearly always is. Sometimes you don't know where it's coming from. And But even though you've got that, I think adjusting to that and learning to live with it, like a lot of other things you have to live with, including people, you know, it's, um, it, 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 which I'm sure you will appreciate given what you've gone through. Um, so I think at the moment, uh, I, I find it more of a, uh, of a, an inspiring challenge and opportunity rather than I'm lucky because I can work at home. Yeah. Uh, for those who can't work at home and for whom there's no work, I appreciate it. The situation then is they're having to think, should they be working, doing something else, and so on? So, and I, I think there's. It feels to me, anyway, certainly at the moment, there's a big push on, um, on sort of. There's talk of life-work balance, which uh, I've heard. I've heard defined rather nicely as life-work integration, which is probably, I think, probably more of an accurate term I'd use, because there's a real pressure to sort. Of, and I don't know. This is what I'm exploring, is is whether the, the pressures have, have changed uh, on on people. Uh, due to various factors, but including social media, or whether it's always been there and it's just coming of age at certain times of your life where things happen that suddenly it puts it in perspective. Uh, and that's that's kind of the, the the premise of of what we're going getting at. And obviously, you've seen an awful lot through your work um, at the bar, and obviously, you've had um, your own your own personal life as well, which of course presents its own challenges when you're working and when you're a dad and when you're a husband and all these sorts of things. Uh, and as a, a and, human being. And at the moment, I mean, I don't know, perhaps you do know about it. I'm not sure that Ingrid does. Maybe she does. Um, you know, after Anna committed suicide, we set up SOS. Yeah. And, um, and we've had to change the way we work on that particular charity, which we came up with something novel well, as far as I know, it's novel. It's very simple. Um, but it means that I'm brought into contact, and Yvette every day is brought into contact with people who are right on the edge all mm. the time for 
manifold reasons, but actually it nearly always comes back to a form of insecurity, either insecurity in themselves and their personalities, or uh, but whether that, you know, which comes first, chicken and egg, whether that's derived from an environmental situation in which uh, they've, they've lost a job or redundancy, which affected Anna herself, redundancy, lost a job, or in a lot of the younger people are saying, and, and th th this I find really troubling, but I quite understand why they're saying, you know, they're saying, you know, why should we bother? What's all this about? You know, where's he going to go? It's not, so I get qualified. There's not going to be a job at the end of the day anyway. And the whole job market's changed. And what I thought I was going to train for the moon. So, you know, it's, it's so fluid that it's very difficult at the moment. It, it will gradually ease, but I don't think it's ever going to be the old normal. Um, yeah. You know, they can't plan even for next week and, or, or, or you know, anniversaries or Christmas or whatever it is they're looking forward to. They can't plan. Yeah. And, and they can't plan because they haven't got any money and they haven't got any money because they haven't got any jobs and so on. And the pressures are enormous. And to be able to, you know, go to bed at night and sleep. I mean, I was listening to a program today and the guy, uh, I mean, he, he'd, it was a very simple situation in which, you know, again, he, he trained for a job which had gone. And he said, I don't know where to go now. And the debts are piling up and I can't sleep at night. And then I, once I don't sleep at night, days are terrible. So it's a very vicious circle for a lot of people. How do you break it? So not only do I have it at work, at work in the sense of the court work that I do, but I also we also get it through SOS. And we try to do the best to give people an, a chance to, to, to reconsider their own position and ask questions of themselves which might lead them to consider whether they, they need to reposition themselves. Uh, and that's a very difficult exercise. But I mean, I connected also to the fact that I've just written something because I'm opposed to HS2, the high-speed railway, uh, which is odd because I come from a railway family. My father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my little up are very much involved in railways. And I was going to go onto the railways. My father wanted me to do that uh, with a boyhood, you know, um, rather puerile dream of being an engine driver. Was that what your the, father did? Was he an engine no, driver? No, he was a he was a controller. He wasn't a fat oh. one, but he was he was a controller <laughs> uh, on the London Northeastern Railway (LNER) as it was then known, and he worked in at King's Cross, and <clears throat> but he got opportunities to go and inspect his region, which London Northeast, going up from <clears throat> King's Cross through North London, Potters Bar, Hadleywood places I knew terribly well because I spent many or wasted however you look at it hours on bridges and platforms collecting train numbers I mean you know I'm a mad but I did <laughs> with others and he had a little John Allen book I remember that and you tick the numbers off I mean could you get more nerdish than that anyway he would <laughs> he would say look do you want to come on a on a on a train uh, on an engine yeah and um, the, the the Mallard uh, and other very fine engines. I mean, they're beautiful bit, bits of engineering. 
And it was in the days, which my father said, everybody was very proud of what they did, and the engine driver and the fireman, so there'd be two of them, would polish the engine, you know, and, and yeah. it would be sparkling green in the mornings and all the rest of it. And, of course, if you got the Flying Scotsman, wow. And then you have these wonderful journeys. He, he, he didn't go very far. We'd go to Potter's Bar. It stopped there, take on water or something, and we got off and got another one back again. Yeah. But, you know, standing on the footplate for a for a journey like that when you go through the tunnels at speed um wasn't for me anyway an amazing experience so i i had a dream that yeah i want to do that i, I can do that uh, or at least i thought i could do it uh, um and he was very keen but then uh, along came um a television series the defenders american series and um it, I didn't you know, sound like John Cleese in a shoebox, but uh, I didn't. We didn't have a television, but a yeah. friend of mine did. So we'd all troop round and have tea and watch television as a as a kind of day out. Um, and along comes this series, and I go, "Wow, that's interesting." I think I'd rather prefer that to you know driving a, an engine. So it comes out of the blue. I just watch the program and get absorbed by what these two two lawyers, father and son, do. Apparently, it's a very well-known series in the States, um, uh, and it was shown over here. And um, and so each week, they took on an issue case, a case which had an issue at its base. What was good about it was they hardly ever won the case. They nearly always lost. Now, that's interesting. Yeah. And I thought, my God, there's hope then, because I can afford <laughs> to lose them. And, and, and they lost these games. But the root to losing was fascinating because unlike here, uh, well, it's changed a bit here now, um, they would be able to get involved with the clients and the preparation of the case, which as a barrister, you, those days, you couldn't do all that. And But I didn't know that when I what, saw it. So saw what, it was, what was it before then? You said you couldn't get involved with the case. Did someone prepare it and you presented it? Yeah, no, it? I mean, the system here still is basically, it's changed a lot. You can have what's called direct access, so you could come straight to me. Well, you can't because I, I I don't do direct access. Um, but um, the profession is split between solicitors and barristers. Solicitors do the preparation yeah. and see the client and take the statements, and, and then they give it all to me, and then I present it in court. So I'm not involved. But although the solicitors who instructed me said, well, we'd like you involved from an early stage, because we want to know how you're going to present it, then we can gear up what we're going to do to fit, you know, your style or the method you want to use, which yeah. I found very useful. But watching these this series, which would be dealing with social issues, people affected, it's not just criminal, it could be civil, and it can be to do with homelessness, poverty, abortion, or major issues where you, you'd watch these lawyers investigate a bit like Erin Brockovich, that yeah. sort of thing. You get yeah. so involved with it and you, you feel, yeah, there's a real sense of injustice. We've got to change something here. And then you fight it, but you're up against it. Every time you're up against it, but one in 10, you win. Yeah. And then you think, yeah, that's good. Takes you on to the next one. So I changed course. I said, yeah, to, uh, well, my father died before I, I actually got going on all this. Um, but he, he was often saying, look, we've no contacts in the law at all. How are you going to do all this? And we haven't got the money either. I haven't yeah. got any money. 
So I think it was through my first wife's uh, contacts. She had an uncle who was a barrister and he was very laid back and very good. And he just said, listen, you know, you haven't got a hope in hell, but if it's in your heart, do it. Uh, and he just said, you've got to know that the social exclusion, the social elitism, the political elitism, you know, unless you come from that background, you're going to struggle. But he said the rewards are amazing. He, he meant not financially, although there is a financial reward. Uh, you know, the rewards are amazing if you, if, you, if you want to take it on for what you achieve for other people. So you can provide a service instead of looking as it as um, a way of making a living, which is what a lot of people do. So I got to it that way, a rather circuitous route. But uh, I just thought, yeah, I, I think I do want to do that. But it's been a struggle, obviously, because I've come from the outside. Well, when, so what was what was home life like uh, when you were a child? Because if your father was a train driver and you, you mentioned you didn't have a television. I couldn't, he was a controller. Oh, um, yeah, he was disabled, so he he couldn't he couldn't drive an engine. He couldn't drive a car. Right. Uh, he got disabled in the First World War. He was shot by Turkish soldiers in the Middle East in Palestine, and the, the, the army of General Allenby was going to free up Palestine. Yeah. So I've always had an interest in that. Anyway, he, he after that, he was young, I mean, in his early 20s, and he came back, he was disabled, lost a leg, so he had to start from scratch, although his family, um, before him, had been involved on the railways, usually as station masters, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I have a lot of top hats, yeah. which um, I used to use, for, uh, well, Ingrid might remember this, I used to use them with the Robson family at Highgate Primary, <laughs> when we put on shows and things and I brought them along and um oh gosh I've forgotten terrible mission I've forgotten um the name of uh, the mum there she was lovely anyway she, we, we we did things together anyway and I had all these hats and they all said where'd you get them from I said oh well it's my father's family blah, blah, blah. anyway he couldn't be a station master but he he kept the hats and um life at home well it, it, it was very secure and it was very, um, well, was it predictable? I'm not sure. I mean, I lived in a, in a, a well, not a shoebox, but I lived in a very small suburban semi-detached in Totteridge, which is part of Finchley, which is Whetstone. I name all those because mm. that's the area. Yeah. And, um, my brothers, my much older, two brothers, they'd left uh, during the Second World War and their lives took different courses after that. So I was brought up as an only child. But there was another influence here, which actually provided the background, I suppose, to seeing something in that television series. The reason I saw something in the television series was triggered by experience at home because i mean this may sound weird really i think it does now well perhaps not in the pandemic i mean you know i do remember the war of the second world war i've got memories i think other than ones i've been told but one of the memories is post-war 
just after the war. My father had, was on a certain form of uh, high priority work for the railways to keep them running during the war. So he was given special allocations of food, which others were not, yeah. to keep him and his family alive. And the key feature of this was bananas. And you go, which is why I've still got a thing about bananas. And I remember that, you know, he'd get not many, but, you know, enough. You'd go, wow, they were like kind of gold dust. Uh, you might get a bunch of bananas each week, three or four. That's all. But I never had them. Wow. And so my mother used to say, don't, don't, don't worry, you, you know, you're fine. We can feed you. We don't need this. We will give them to families who can't afford them. Right. So I said, well, I didn't really question it, obviously. And so she said, get in the back of the car, because she did all the driving. And um, we went round to these houses, different houses, giving out a banana. And I thought, what is it about these bananas? And why can't I have one? You know, and all <laughs> And she wouldn't let me go in the house. She said, no, 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 you stay out here. I'm just going to give them a banana and so on. This went on for a long time. And I thought, wow, that's quite something. You know, it was a kind of a spirit of generosity when they didn't have a lot themselves. But nevertheless, the little that they did have of that kind, they gave it away. And I thought, that's a really amazing example. At least I thought so at the time. And it rubbed off. I remembered it, partly because of, you know, where I didn't fit into it all but then there was another aspect of this it's not the same as the banana bit but it involves the car and my and my mother driving she she had a routine which was she'd go to sainsbury's existed even those days but they were small shops butcher's shops with white tiles i remember all that they're very you know even the assistants all wore their white aprons it was in those days sainsbury's a different kind of shop now obviously well, they're actually displaying those on the on the. I don't know if you've seen on the walls of the the, the current Sainsbury's. Are so they? The supermarkets oh, have got old pictures. See, one of them's probably got me in it. Um, <laughs> it's that old. Um, yeah, I, I I didn't always go with her. Anyway, on a day I didn't go with her, so I was a bit older than the banana story. Um, but it, it did affect me. And she went to go in her usual and get her whatever she got every week. Once a week, Thursdays or something, because Wednesdays were early closing days and so on. And she'd go in and he got her shopping, came back in. And there was a copper who did her for parking. Not on, There weren't yellow lines and meters, none of that. No. You had these little silver studs. She right. allegedly parked inside the studs of a pedestrian crossing. And she, 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 she absolutely, I've never seen her so aggravated and angry, you know. I did not do this. And so, much to everybody's amazement, uh, she decided to fight the case. And I mean, nobody fights a parking case, especially in those <laughs> days. But she troops off to a magistrate's court. Some, uh, I think it was in somewhere, it, it, either Highgate Magistrate's Court or somewhere, or somewhere like that. A North London magistrate. It got reported in the Finchley Times. <laughs> and... Because she won. Because what she did was, uh, well, she didn't have to do much. The, the police officer had overlooked something that my father, disabled, yes. was in the car. Right, okay. <laughs> and he, it's not the days where you stick something on the windscreen, you just tell somebody you're going to be summoned, then she gets the summons and turns up. Yeah. And 
she did a sort of Perry Mason and, and called my father, who's disabled, you can imagine a disabled, very respectable railway controller coming in and saying, you know, she didn't. She never does. She wouldn't dare do that. And of course, you've got to quit it. And the yeah. headlines, you know, <laughs> North London housewife. Um, went. But what she did then do, she, she would say, you know, because I go around and sit in the back of the car and we go odd places. Say, Michael, there you are. She said, you know, if they do that to me over this, what on earth are they doing to everybody else? Yeah. And so from that moment onwards, she just said, look, she called them blue bottles. She said, there's another one over there. You know, watch what he's doing. Because don't, you know, it was this feeling that you can't trust a man in uniform or a woman, I suppose, but mostly men those days. And so I, it just sank in. So when this series came up, if you combine bananas with, with Sainsbury's and um, police officers who couldn't find a, a space to tell the truth about a parking offence, um, I, I found a sort of compelled to go in a direction which was one of, well, okay, I'm not going to accept everything that's going to come along, and I would like to be the voice of people who, who can't speak for themselves or don't want to. Do you remember the sort of age when you made that sort of decision? Because the sense of social injustice oh, seemed to be there through the bananas. Yeah, and, and no, I didn't, make, I didn't make the decision until I saw the series, the American series, which kind of codified it yeah. and gave it, it got a kind of concrete form. There it was. And I thought, well, that's a vehicle. I understand what they're doing. Yeah. And they're doing what my mother did, actually, for herself. Yeah. And, and, and I feel that... Um, it, well, particularly when I started, but it's gone full circle. The need for social justice is probably as great as it was when I started. So, so that sort of was the was the driving force from beginning to end. Well, yeah, it's, it's very clear that there's that sense of you know injustice and slightly fighting against the system from then, and yeah. and your uh, wife's um, family saying, you know, well, you, you know, there's a real sense of classism and uh, yeah. and social snobbery. Um, yeah. that, that you were instantly fighting from then. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, otherwise life was, well, life was, you know, troubled even in there. My father, it killed him in the end. I mean, in order to, it's really for my benefits, so I feel somewhat responsible, but I suppose I shouldn't really. I mean, he was very anxious to give me what the two brothers didn't have. So... Um, mainly it was sending me to private schools. They didn't, they didn't go to private schools. But So I went to a preparatory school, which is still there, by Woodside Park Underground Station called Homewood. Uh, and the school's still there. Uh, and I went back to have a look at it many years ago. And the headmistress came out and said, why are you looking? I said, because I, I came to this school. She said, oh, would you like to come and see it? <laughs> I, I said, no, no, I don't want to come in. I just wanted a flavour uh, of the fact that it is still there. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all, that's all. But, and then he sent me to, or rather he had to pay for me going to Highgate, which is sort of, well, now a better known public school, but it was then a you know, minor independent public school. And, um, cost a lot of money for yeah. him so he had to work outrageous hours and he would work uh early late night that so it's a different turn every week 
Right. And so one week he'd be working all through the night. Another week he'd be getting up early and coming back early. And another another week, he, he, you know, it'd be, it, it, it would be uh, late. He'd be working late, but not during the, throughout the whole of the night. So he'd go in late and come back in the middle of the night. So early, late and night, those were his turns. And I mean, you, you can't do it. The system didn't. And he died of cancer in his early 60s, which was, um, you know, very sad, very sad. So I didn't really get to know him very well because he would never be there because his hours were different to mine. And I, I was either, you know, he'd be either going out to work or coming back. There was never what they now call quality time. And I didn't really have the opportunity except on a holiday maybe and he was so tired he didn't want to do very much and he was disabled so he he couldn't do a great deal uh, and my mother was very supportive of him and um deferred to him on all things but again was i suppose highly respectful of um the whole established situation so she was Tory, voted for Margaret Thatcher, worked for Margaret Thatcher, got me delivering stuff for Margaret Thatcher and wanted me to join the Young Conservatives. She was a member of the church. She did, you know, she knitted, if that's the right term, tapestry kneelers for people in the pews yeah. and so on and so on. So it, it, so it was a very straight upbringing, if I can put it that way. And yeah. and. Uh, you know, we never had, I don't think we ever went on many holidays. If we did, it was South End or somewhere like that. We go on a free pass on the, on the train yeah. from where we live, basically. <laughs> I mean, I think that later in life, he got free passes, which enabled him to take the train into Europe. But basically it was a very, but I, I don't complain about any of it because actually it was secure. I knew it's the same house, never moved once. Yeah. Um, so from uh, you know, and it was, I'm very thankful for that. And so, two of the friends who I had at that period, we called ourselves the Three Musketeers because we went uh, on adventures during all the holidays in the days when London wasn't built up, and we found ourselves following the Dollist Brook from Barnet down to the Thames, and odd things like that, yeah. things you can't do in the same way now. But um, so. Uh, and I've kept up with both of them. Um, one's in Africa, one's in Canada, uh, in the United States. But that's interesting from that period. Whereas I haven't kept up with friends from other periods, but I have from that one. Yeah. It's strange how you form these friendships because, you know, speaking to, to Jenny Murray about the fact that her and uh, me and my her oldest son, Ed, are still friends. And we met. Oh, really? And we met. Ah. Um, gosh, I, I think she was saying we met in a sort of playgroup. So two years old or, or maybe slightly younger. And since then, we've we've still remained really, really firm friends. And uh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting how, where you keep, keep these uh, these friends from and where you sort of build them. But most of them, I'd have to say most of my friends are from school, you know, kind of school right. experiences and so on. Yeah, no, it's 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 quite interesting. And after all these years, you know, she was saying that she had um uh, you know, it's still still in contact with somebody. I think maybe from first year of university, or something like that. Yeah, I have. A, I mean, I do have a, a a close liaison with the university I went to, mainly because 
<laughs> like everything else. It was a struggle to get into the university in the first place. I'd failed to get into Oxbridge and all the rest of it. And my father was dying in the summer when I was applying. And so I didn't want to tell him that I hadn't got into Oxbridge. And a friend of mine uh, then said, well, why don't you try Kiel where he was going? And I said, oh, I don't know that I'll make it, you know. And anyway, I've missed the date and all the rest of it for submitting. My father dies on the 18th of August. I remember that. And then I thought, and I was angry about the fact that he died and my mother didn't want me to know how he died particularly. And it was all rather, rather. What, uh, what, what do you mean by how he died? Because were you well, sorry, he had, yeah, he, cancer. he had cancer, yeah, yeah, throat cancer. But she wouldn't let me visit him because apparently he was in a bad way. And then when he died uh, and I took her to the, the morgue where he was laid out and I said, look, I'll come in. And she said, no, I don't want you to see him. So I didn't see him. Anyway, he, he um, I mean, the, 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 the point was that in, in a way, this period when um, I was sort of forging something new, I thought I've got to do, I can't just stagnate in the wake of this death. And I thought, I'll try this university. I don't know anything about it. And it's, I think Arthur Kersler's right, the roots of coincidence. Nothing is a coincidence, really. I just sort of thought, I need advice here. So I went back to my father's boss on the railways, a man called Mr. Fines, who's very well known, um, was then. Yeah. And he's written a book about uh, my life on the railways and all the rest of it. Anyway, I went and saw him and I just said, look, I, I don't know, I don't want to stagnate. I don't, you know, he, he died, I'm very upset, but and I haven't achieved what he wanted me to achieve. What do you suggest? And he said, well, um, if you've got your heart set, which I did have at that point, to do something different, and the law was just around the corner, he said, well, you'll have to get a degree of some kind. So, you know, follow your inclination and go to go to Kiel. They didn't do laws, it happened. But... Um, I, I said, but I, I you know, I'm, he said, well, as it as it happens, he said, I know the admissions tutor. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is a new university. Kiel's hardly been founded by then by Mr. A.D. Lindsay, who wrote The Democratic State, and he was the founder of Kiel University. He founded it and modelled it on an Oxford college. Right. And so I thought, okay, okay. And he gave me the name, um of the admissions tutor and the address so i thought all right then <laughs> oh i'll go you couldn't do this now but you could in another way i think there are ways of always different ways of doing it. we're sort of a so different I old got, boys network isn't it you've sort of got it, uh, you know like in in the sense that um you advised that you were from the wrong schools and the wrong uh, kind of yeah. clubs uh suddenly you've got this old boys network the handshakes it's great and and it, and he said I, I i why don't you go so i well, he didn't say that. He didn't know I was going to do this. He just said, I do know him. said, you could write to him and find out what the procedure is. So I said, well, writing takes too long. I said this to myself, and I'll go on the train because um, I still got special tickets through my father who died. So I remember going up to this windswept campus on the, uh, uh, on the moors of Staffordshire, virtually, just outside Newcastle-under-Lyme yeah. and Stoke, the potteries. 
completely new world to me. I couldn't believe it. Because very sheltered living in Finchley, I can tell you. Yeah. So I I remember getting the bus up from the station to the campus, walking into the campus. It was huge by my standards. And I found the road where he lived in a, in a sort of staff quarters. And it was lunchtime-ish. I knocked on the door. His name was Hugh, Hugh Leach. I've always remembered him. And, you know, it was amazing. He didn't know I was coming. He opened the door. He said, who are you? And I said, well, I think you know so-and-so, who Mr. Fines. Oh, he said, yes, I do, I do. I said, well, he, he suggested that I come and see you. Well, he didn't say that quite, but I decided I come and see you. He said, well, what is it about? I, said, I just said, look, I want, I want to come to this university. My friend's coming. He's starting next week. Well, um, <laughs> it's a bit late. I said, yeah, well, it is a bit late, but, you know, can you do anything about it? He sort of took a deep breath, and he was obviously completely taken aback because this doesn't happen now and didn't happen very much then. And he came in and he said, look, we're just having lunch. Do you want a, do you want a bite to eat? So I said, no, oh, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was, and they got to the dessert course. I've remembered this as well. It was butterscotch angel delight. Oh. And which uh, again uh, was weird. We've been and having that recently and it's got a real nostalgia to it. <laughs> is it? Oh, yeah. well, there you go. Um, I'm glad it's still around. And so I, I sampled it and all the rest of it, but my mind was on other things. He said, um, he said, this is most unusual. I said, well, I, I'm sorry. He said, did you apply or did you apply through the school? And he said, and I said, I don't remember. I think I may have done, but I can't remember now what, because of everything that's happened this summer. I don't know about my father and all. Yeah. And he said, um, he said, all right, listen, when you finish, you just sit here. I'll, I'll go and see if I can find the file. So he goes when he comes back. He said, yes, you did, but we didn't think you were worth even considering. I said, oh, right. Well, you're not Tell the me. first. <laughs> I said, you're not the first. Don't worry. <laughs> um, he said, well, this is, I, I said, look, I don't want you to take me because my father's died. And I don't want you to take me because my, you know, one of my best friends is coming here. Uh, but I do want to come. He said, okay, 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 okay. Um, he was obviously thinking, what could he do? What could he do? Probably to brush me off or something. Like yeah. That. He said, I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask you a question. And he said, I'll be very interested in what you say. Well, I said, all right. And he said, if I were to give you a million pounds, which then was two million, or maybe three, yeah. in 1960 this was, if I gave you a million pounds, what would you do with it? Oh, I said, I have no problem with that at all. I said, first of all, I wouldn't come here, would I? <laughs> I said, he started to laugh just like, I said, I wouldn't come here. I said, I give half of it to my mum, who's in a really difficult position because father's died. She hasn't got a job. She's never had a job in that sense. She's been a housewife. Well, that's a major job as well. But she didn't get paid in that way. So she's, you know, parlous at the moment, economically straightened. So I give her half of it and she can, you know, make I said, the other half, I tell you what I'd love to do something I've never really done, go around the world. And, you know, I'll start off in Europe and make my way around with the, with the half a million. It'll take me all the way around. And I'll spend a year, maybe two, doing that. Yeah. And he looked at me. 
He said, is, is that all you want to say? I said, I thought, what have I not said? And I said, um, yeah, that's all I want to say. He said, you're in. He said, you're in. <laughs> you talked yourself out of the position and he offers it to you. Yeah, and it was extraordinary. And I said, oh, wow. And I really was, uh, you know, genuinely surprised. He said, um, I saw you brought a bag with you. I said, yes, just in case you did take me, I'm ready to start tomorrow. <laughs> and he said, you're joking. I said, no, I can, you know, if you can find a bed for the night, I'll stay up here. It wasn't quite as easy as that, but he said, look, give me a break. You know, I need a week to sort you out. We'll get you, we'll get you up here and in. And that was, for me, that was a game changer because uh, the course that they had, they don't have it anymore. There was a four-year course with a foundation year, which was a shop, the foundation year, everybody had to do it. Right. And whatever you come to do, you did that. Was it a generic shop foundation year or was it in the course that you were hoping to study? No, no, it, it was a general one. Mm shop window on the world you start with astronomy in the first week of the year okay. you end up with zoology in the last week <laughs> and each week it's different yeah. with seminars and all the rest of it and reading yeah and i was amazed everybody was amazed and the object was they wanted to see if you stuck to the subjects which you put down i think in my case i i think i put down history i wasn't bad at history history and possibly english rather boring in a way anyway i saw all this stuff and i said oh yeah well oh, i'd like to do that next week i thought oh i'd like to do that yeah. you know so the year went on at the end of the year you took an exam uh which tested how you'd absorbed everything so it's a very interesting exam because it was setting general questions about your perceptions and so on and then they said right now we want at the end of the exam they said what subjects would you like to do for your degree? And it had to be two subjects, okay. two majors and two minors. So four subjects, in fact. Right. So I chose a subject. Well, I chose one of the ones I wanted to go for because I thought I better have something I know about. And then the other one, I'll choose a subject I know nothing about. Never really heard about it at school even, and that's philosophy. And so I started philosophy with a very well-known philosopher. He died a few years ago. In fact, I ended up uh, cross-examining him on the moral maze when I was doing that series for the BBC. And um, uh, Professor Flew, and I went to his first seminar, um, and he said, um, "So, what have you read?" And I said, "Well, nothing." He said, "What are you? What are you doing sitting here and you've read nothing?" He said, "Get out." He said, "When you've read," and he gave me a list of you know, Principia Mathematica and God knows what else. Uh, when you've read them, come back and we'll see how you go. So it took me, you know, a good few weeks and I didn't go to anything. I just sat back in digs. Well, I had a room on the campus, um, which were prefabricated army huts from the Second World War. And so I, I read the, the various books that he said or tried to. Then I went back and he said, right, uh, well, I don't know whether you can come in yet, but anyway, sit here and let's let's see how it goes. So I started talking, and I found myself actually talking about what I'd read. And he said, oh, you really have read the stuff, or some of it anyway. He said, mm, maybe there's hope for you after all. He said, okay, after that, you're coming. But I have a strict regime here. And so it's an essay a week. 
I thought, God, right, an essay a week, that's going to be steep. I've got to do the reading and the writing all in one week. Yeah. Anyway, so it went on from there all the way through the, 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 the remaining years, another three years I had of that. And I was completely mesmerized. I thought it was phenomenal. I mean, he really got you thinking in a way that, you know, my rather pea brain had never been stretched in this way. And at the end of it, obviously, it comes the finals and all the rest of it. And I, I got a 2-1. I'm not trying to blow any trumpets, but he came up to me and he said, uh, he said, I've got to say something to you. He said, actually, you got a first in philosophy. But because you didn't do so well in history, you've only got a 2-1. Yeah, I said, shit, I knew I shouldn't <laughs> have done history. Anyway, uh, and then later, he, he was a witness on the moral maze. Um, we didn't agree uh, on various things. He was an empirical philosopher. But he, got, he, he set the tracks for me in terms of the analysis of cases and modes of thought and really not being afraid to take on almost anything. And he said, next, you've got to do a debate here. And I, 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 I was absolutely, you know scared witless that i had to do a debate i never stood up in public and done a speech or anything of any kind so i went and and, and did it it was hopeless i wrote it all out all right it wasn't it wasn't funny it didn't read well and he took <laughs> me aside uh, that was in the first year of the degree he said look you you've got besides reading and communicating you've got to be able to communicate to a wider audience that's no good that's hopeless you do the next one yeah. So I did the next one. He said, I don't want you to have any notes at all. I said, what, I just stand there and say And he said, yeah. But again, that was it. Just thinking on your feet, which is obviously yeah. something that's put you in good stead. Yeah, very good stead. So I, I have a tremendous debt of gratitude. He wasn't the only one, obviously. There were other lecturers. They were a very fine set of staff there. And, of course, I lived away from home, which I'd never done before. And I visited the potteries, an industrial depressed area as it is now, um, which I'd never been before. I, you know, and there's a local coal mine, which is now shut, Silverdale. And, and it was a whole life experience there. And, um, well, I, I've, I've got an honorary degree there and I do go back. And we, we, we liaise with Keel. I think it's next week we've got one coming up where we're doing SOS meetings with Keel. Yeah. So well, I still keep in contact with the university and um, I've tried to support it, but they got, a, they got rid of the foundation, yeah. Uh, actually, the Robbins Committee had an investigation, that's what it was called, while I was there, because they the usual scene, it was too expensive. Right. They, got, they only wanted three-year courses. Yeah. So the bit that meant most to me was... Um, eradicated which is unfortunate i think do you feel the philosophy kind of allowed you to think slightly slightly differently to other lawyers potentially when you oh i think so without question yeah yeah because most lawyers uh, did law possibly at school and they, they then the roots have changed since but then when i started in the 50s and 60s most lawyers came from legal families. They went to public schools where law was a subject. They did law at university. 
They were exempt various bar exams. They walked into sets of chambers where their fathers and grandfathers had practiced. And <clears throat> they were steeped in precedent. Yeah. Precedent are, are in terms of practicality and precedent in terms of the substance of the law. Mm. And so they, in a sense, it was a very narrow approach almost a blinkered approach to have it in that way and i obviously didn't have any of that and and i found myself asking questions from a direction which they all thought was subversive even though you know i wasn't a member of any party if anything i was a young conservative um all that changed by once i've been to, to keel things changed dramatically yeah but um so I, I found myself asking the questions that others didn't ask or didn't want to ask. And so, you know, I, I, I mentioned this the other, the other day to somebody. It's a phrase you don't hear anymore. You know, I got labelled as the red under the bed. You know? <laughs> I know that and, term, yeah. Yeah, you know that term. Well, no. a lot of people don't because, of course, it doesn't. And, of course, I, I'm interested because, of course, we've got a final crop of cronies at the moment in charge of the so-called anyway in charge of our country and we've got you know boris pretty patel and all the rest of it really having a go at lawyers yet again you yeah. know this time not calling them reds under the bed but activist lawyers as if we're getting in the way of what they want to do which is you know lock a few more people up then we yeah. won't have to have the cost of a trial so I, I it's come full circle you know i start off as a red under the bed well i'm now on top of the bed but basically you know they're not favorably inclined to the approach that i've taken which is fine i don't you know well i've i've, I, uh, I've read a fair few uh, over the years a fair few labels attached to you and uh, uh oh yeah oh yeah i think the daily mail is a favorite of yours and it? it's always, always uh either lefty lefty lawyer or socialist or communist or anything they can put before you that sand, sand sandal wearing hairy <laughs> vest and all that and i kind of you know people say well don't you want to do so i said no they want me to do something about it i don't want to do anything about it if if that's you know that's in a sense it's their problem not mine i said you know that if you're not noticed doing what you're doing then i think there may be a problem i want it what i do to be noticed in the hope that it may change things. And the mail is, is an interesting, well, I hesitate to call it a newspaper, but you know, it, it is an interesting paper because parts of it are quite, you know, there are certain subjects which they've taken on, which um, I am in favor of. So for example, uh, I'm a member of an organization called Viva, which um, being a, a vegetarian, I'm in favor, obviously, of putting it shortly, rights for animals and the way we treat animals and animal welfare and all the rest of it. Uh, and they're very keen on that. So I find, in fact, you know, they do have certain courses, causes that I'm interested in. But uh, the abuse, well, you know, goes, yeah. with, goes with a patch. And you just managed to shrug that off. I have now. I didn't at the beginning. I was, yeah. you know, I got, I got, uh, to be honest, yes, I was perturbed, disturbed. And... You know, I would worry about it or think about it. And then people say, look, do you think we take any notice of what the mail says? You know, we'd be worried if they weren't talking about you and saying rude things about you. 
So that's fine, you know. Um, was, was that, would that have been normal in the job to 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 be making headlines like that, or was this? No, 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 it wasn't. No, it, it was wasn't. The, that the, was the cases thing. you were taking. Yeah, the cases I was taking, you know, it started with uh, the Anger Brigade. You can imagine doing that one. Anger Brigade in 1971, who placed incendiary devices for political purposes in various institutions and political homes in London. And then I moved on to doing defending the Price Sisters, who, um, along with others, placed a rather larger devices called bombs in London, and one of which blew up my car, which is an irony. I went on to defend them anyway. Um, so I moved from, uh, and it, it was a, there was a progression. I didn't organize it. It just happened like Topsy just grew. Yeah. And then I did a whole string of cases um, for the Irish community. I then did a string of cases for the black community. And a film was on very recently, which uh, rekindled all my memories, which was by the uh, Little Axe Company. They've got a series of five films on at the moment. I think it's five. The first one was about the mangrove, and uh, I was closely connected with the mangrove restaurant in Notting Hill because I defended its its owner, the person who ran it anyway, Frank Critchlow, um, on three separate occasions. He was acquitted each time, and he was being fitted up by the local constabulary for drugs or whatever they thought would lock him up and shut down the restaurant. Why did so they see him as such a threat? Yeah, they did, yeah. Because what he was doing um, was providing a community centre through a a restaurant come meeting place in All Saints Road. I mean, yeah. the road is still there. And yeah. it's it, the, the reason it's full circle again because I, I'm representing this Grenfell inquiry. And All Saints Road is within the shadow of Grenfell Tower. So... Yeah. Um, for me, it's going back to an area I know very well. And um, so I, I then did a series of cases representing the black community. And and then, of course, there's the Lawrence case and a lot of other ones. But they all had a sort of theme. They yeah. were all themed. They were, you know, they they really do conform in a way to the, 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 the vision that uh, came out of um, bananas and came out of yeah. you know my mother's experience and the american television series and i really you know i've known you a, lo- a long time and but i've never known you if you if that makes sense yeah and it does yeah and and the thing that struck me or one of the things that struck me was that um there was no there was no concept of what you were doing in a sense like you know i, I knew you were a barrister and i knew you you were, no, you were a well-known barrister, but I just, it, it never occurred to me to ask, you know, as, as it doesn't when you're young, you know, we're running around in the cricket green and whatever else and having barbecues and, and, and I never, ever remember seeing any kind of stress from you or any kind of weight of what you were doing. It was always, yeah, I just No, want... I think, uh, you're right about that. I mean, I think, um, the reason was, well, it was due to the, the, the family itself was able to absorb the stress. They didn't know this, but it meant that I could go home 
and nobody wanted to know what I did for a living, <laughs> which was brilliant. Yeah. Because I don't want to go home and rehearse what I've done all day. Yeah. Um, so to go home and find that they weren't remotely interested, well, maybe they were, but they, you know, they were absorbed with what they were doing. Yeah. And at one time, um, well, before I got to know you, you know, there were five under the same roof. And the five under the same roof was uh, heavy going because they all had different interests. As they grew up, they all had different interests. And I think it contributed to uh, the difficulties in the first relationship because we never saw each other. We were just chauffeurs taking them to different places. You, you know, Anna was a brilliant ice skater. Um, Jonathan played a lot of table tennis and snooker and other things, and he had other interests. Um, Leo was swimming. Louise was swimming. You know, I spent a lot of time taking them to events at weekends that they couldn't get to themselves at that age. And by the time it got to Monday, I was completely exhausted. Yeah. That going to work was actually a bit easier. So I think, um, but the good thing, the, the really good thing, besides benefit to them, of course, is that there was no chance for me to dwell on anything that had gone wrong. And things do go wrong all the time, every week, still do. And you've got to be able to uh, offload them in a different way so that uh, an unsuspecting way, and it may be a pursuit that you've got um, in a, a hobby or a pastime, or, you know, in, I think it's in Who's Who, they say, do you have any hobbies? And I said, yes, my children. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's it. Well, I always say I used to have hobbies, now I have children. So <laughs> similar, <laughs> similar thing. <laughs> Can't go on three-hour bike rides these days and, uh, you know, going off climbing for a weekend so easily, so... So you were on quite long and um, detailed cases and then you would come home and you'd be sort of greeted by, oh, it's dad home, so we're going to ask for whatever it is yeah. that we've been missing. Um, yeah. And that was a way of deep, uh, sort of compartmentalising yeah. the kind of work and life thing. And, and I mean, I did, well, I had one thing. I've still got it. I think you can see it. Look, I've still got a drum kit. I saw the symbol out of the corner of the eye. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've had that. Years and years, and Kieran, one of my sons, he, he, he um, he's very good. He, so I gave it to him for a while, but then he, it's a, it takes up a lot of space, so he didn't have space for it. So I said, can I have it back? And for a while, I played in a group with other lawyers called the Mindless Pleasures. Um, we played heavy rock in a pub in Stoke Newington called the Edinburgh Castle. Oh, I know. We yeah. used to get, you know, oh right, it's probably still there. Yeah, I used to get ten shillings a gig. Um, and probably my, my drumming certainly wasn't worth more than that anyway. So um, I'd have that as a pursuit. Um, and and I, I did love sport. And I played, you know, Sunday football mm. with um, actually people who were at, God, takes me back, people who were at Highgate Primary. The, the football team was called the, the American, South American Newsletter. Right. And they were all wizards. Yeah. And I said, you don't want me. You know, I, you know I'm know, i nothing like as good. They said, listen, you're big. I said, yes. <laughs> they said, just get in the way. So <laughs> I was a central defender wherever they wanted, you know. And it was amazing every Sunday. We won easily every Sunday. I hardly had to move, really. 
Um, I wish I could remember the name of the family. They were wonderful. They had boys at, um, uh, I think they were at Highgate Primary at one point. Anyway, um, they, uh, yeah, then came one Sunday where it was muddy on this pitch on Hampstead Heath. And the goalie um, uh, had to stretch out. His, and he stretched his legs out. And we all heard it go, oh, God. and he couldn't get up. And he was seriously, he was carried off. And we decided to call it a day that maybe, you know, we're all getting too old for it. But so I did, I played a lot of that in North North London. And then Freddie, of course, who, you know, he yeah. he's keen on football, um, was keen on. Well, I think he still plays in um, various teams who play Clapham Common and around. I think he still plays anyway. I yeah. haven't seen him for a bit. Yeah. So, yeah, there's always that, you know, it's more than just, them wanting to talk about what they're doing, but also doing what they're doing and joining in their their pursuits. So um, that there has always been a you know there's been a lot on, so it's fine. Mm-hmm. And Freddie joined. I, he, I don't think you, you were, were you a football. I don't think you were. Um, he he joined the Honeywell Horrors. All right. Is that a, a, when it's he was a, at Honeywell a, or when he was? Yeah. When oh, he was okay. At Honeywell. All right. Yeah. Honeywell Horrors, and and I was one of the parents who went along and stood in as a referee occasionally, uh, not not very successfully because I was very biased, but um, <laughs> uh, but it was great. It was great fun because you know they really really cared about this and they played hard and they wanted to win and get get further on. It's every Sunday, yeah. Uh, often actually Tooting Beck, it was on Tooting Common, often particular pitch there, so. And what was the working, um, what was working life like? I mean, was it was it all or nothing? Was it when a case was on, it was full on, or was yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And then you had time. I think off because after. I didn't I didn't treat it as a nine to five job, and I, I got involved with the people I was representing and getting to know them, so that I I, I was in their shoes, standing in their shoes. Because I said, uh, unlike the advice, which was. You know, you've got to act like a surgeon and it's just one body after another. I can't do it that way. I've got to know who it is and why it is, which means it takes time to get to know them. And then very often there was a campaign associated with the case. So you'd have to broaden your reach to be able to communicate with the campaign and explain to them what was going on, what they could and couldn't do. And what I could and couldn't do because I wasn't representing the campaign, but a particular individual. So it's quite tricky. So during the week, sometimes stretching into weekends, um, you know, it, it. I would be home late. I'd leave fairly early from uh, Crouch End, mostly at that period, and then later from um, Battersea. Um, from Battersea, I cycled in. Um, I'd, I'd leave, you know, seven in the morning. I'd be back eight at night. So during the week, it's t- it was tough on the on the on the two different families, yeah. basically. And and you managed it when you got home. There was there was a separation, or were you? Could, did you? Would you, could you continue? I get home and uh, uh, yeah. I mean, by the time I got home, the younger ones would probably be going to bed, or I've got to bed, or I would help to put them to bed, or whatever uh or if there was some cooking to do although my first wife was a very good cook um 
you know, you get tired. So I started, I learned to cook then, continued cooking in the second relationship with the vet, which you, you probably remember. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I didn't do it all the time. She did some as well, but there was always something else to do, mm. something to do around the house and so on, or in the garden or whatever. Um, and, you know, participate in the things that Freddie, when he was growing up, was interested in. Yeah. Okay, as I say, I just remember really fondly those times just in front of the house he had done in Wandsworth Common where we'd play That's right. in the dog free that, area. Well, that was and we just seemed very carefree and all got involved in sports and stuff. It was really, it was a great, yeah. great time. I mean, it was a, it, I was very lucky once again to have, um, you know, a house which was right on the common. Yeah. And so, you know, you could run, run, run right there and, do all sorts of things, which um, is very difficult for people. If you don't live near an open space or you're in a Grenfell Tower block with no open space immediately available. Well, I mean, we've seen that tragedy. And then we've obviously with the lockdown and, and the various things as well, yeah. it's, especially over this summer where it's been incredibly hot. And you know, there's lots of people who don't it's have It's hot. And, you, you know, if you're a single parent, let's say with two kids, three kids or whatever it is, say two kids in a one bedroom or a two bedroom flat on the 18th floor. And, you know, you're in lockdown, then you're not in lockdown, then you can go around the corner, but you can't go around the corner. And I just think the whole thing's been handled so badly by the government. When in a way there have been predictions of a pandemic, perhaps not <coughs> this precise one, but one very similar preparations were non-existent by the time they got the preparations they hadn't got a settled policy and i think if they worked out a settled policy instead of knee-jerk reactions at first oh yeah right well we'll have a lockdown straight away but we'll have a lockdown then oh things are dropping okay you can all go on holiday now so they all troop down to bournemouth and then again there's a spike as everybody predicted oh sorry got to go back into lockdown well not lockdown entirely just by region or by yeah, it's bad. It's completely mad. Do you think the lockdown was necessary? I mean, was that would that have been a a course that perhaps you would have? I, was I the think best? I have quite strong views on this. I'm hoping that Boris will keep his word. So <laughs> that's a vain hope. I mean, he's promised an inquiry into this because I do think public inquiry it was mishandled from the beginning because uh, the World Health Authority were perfectly aware of the risk of zoonotics, namely a virus being passed from intensively farmed or uh, corralled animals, wherever they are in the world, yeah. uh, whether they're in the far, far east in a wet market or e e even here in a factory farm, um, that there was this risk. Uh, and they had a dry run and they knew that the NHS was not in a position to cope but they didn't do anything about it. Yeah. And they had plenty of warnings from China, although, you know, maybe it should have come a bit earlier, but they certainly got it. So I think the first thing is what they should have done right at the beginning is because there was a risk it was spreading quickly, we had an opportunity to ensure, well, not exactly close the borders, but you have strict controls at the point of entry so that people can't bring it in because yeah. that's what happened. Yeah, uh, There weren't strict controls. They did it when they knew about a load coming off a cruise ship. But otherwise, they didn't. 
Yeah. So that that was the first mistake. Second mistake is, okay, so you you have a lockdown, you know, you, you lock the stable door and it's too late. Well, all right, maybe first time round. But I think the approach that they should have had here, knowing that, well, knowing that they didn't know anything about this virus, they did not know how it would spread. They did not know what would be able, and we still don't. Maybe the vaccine will work. We don't know. Um, they think it will. But um, they seem to be very confident about this. I mean, the reason we're not confident, and I'm very sceptical, is because I think the policy that should have been adopted is the approach they took in Sweden. I know it's a bigger country, in one sense, smaller population, but they've had a consistent approach from the beginning. Yeah. And I think the consistent approach, once the first lockdown had finished, would be severely regulated, but basically, as long as you wash, you've got a mask and you keep your distance and you don't have huge numbers, you know, and people having street parties and God knows what. So you're going to have to be regulated. That's what they've done in Sweden. And people have gone on working. Yeah. You work in a regulated environment. Instead of which, people are completely confused. Businesses are all over the place because they, they plan, they open, and then they've got to close again. You can't run it like that. So I think that it's been really badly handled. And I, and I think that the problem we've, well, we have got is that Yvette here in, in the other room has, has had serious medical problems caused by a device authorised by the MHRA. Who said it was perfectly safe hmm. um, that is mesh and um, there's just been an inquiry which has said they've been very bad she's suing johnson and johnson and um at the time are they the would they be the manufacturers of that mesh or? yeah 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 one of the manufacturers yeah uh, the main one really and and the mhra authorized its use and said it was perfectly safe when actually they didn't know, they hadn't got yeah. a clue, because yeah. of course, it, you know, this was right at the beginning, 10 years ago. Now women are in terrible pain, agony. Oh, she will not take the vaccine because she does not trust the MHRA when they say, as they do, that it, you know, we haven't cut corners, we've done it very quickly, we've done what takes 10 years in 10 months and all the rest of it. And you're all very impressed. And then you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. So I, I sort of feel in a way I, I, I'm interested in two aspects of it. One that unlike other immunization programs, this is a synthetic um, immunity in the sense that a chemical has been injected in order to provoke a reaction similar to you having the virus. So it's a little unlike, well, substantially unlike some of the other inoculations, which incorporate the very thing which you're trying to guard against. Yeah. So I see that as a bit of a benefit because I'm nearly 80, so I've got to be careful. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that if it helps protect other people, because I could still be... Um, an asymptomatic carrier not know that I've got it yeah. unless I test myself every day. Um, if they were tested the available. Test, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 
and, and if it means I protect other people from inadvertent transmission, that's another reason I might take it. So I might take it if I'm offered it, and I'm going to be, what, third category might get offered by next summer or something, I don't know, whenever they get around to it. Well, even that seems but to be changing. I heard today that um, doctors are being recategorized on that as well. I, I don't know if that's, that's just... Yeah, they, 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 they probably have. I think they've they've said already it won't, it won't necessarily be all care homes because they can't keep it at the right temperature. Yeah. And it only lasts six days, and um, there can be serious repercussions if they don't, if they keep it too cold before they inoculate you. Right. So there are obviously complications, and I am aware of that. But I think Yvette is implacably opposed to it um, because she doesn't trust, and I see why she doesn't trust them. Yeah, absolutely. When you, because uh, I'm jump around a little bit, but there was a there was. Uh, a question I think I asked and I don't know if I asked you years ago but there was a there was someone else because after years of being a musician and um and frankly getting shafted by a particular contract there was a there was a period of time when I sort of stepped off the the kind of treadmill of gigging and and rehearsing and, and performing and all that sort of thing and thought you know what I want to fight for the little people you know I want to I want to I want to make sure nobody gets screwed by a music contract ever again and there was a, a, a period of time when I considered uh doing a conversion course um to fight for that um and that for me was quite clear about you know the the the, the kind of nuts and bolts of a, of a contract but when you're dealing with when you're asked to represent somebody and you don't know or maybe you do know if they've done it or haven't done whatever it is they've been accused of how can you choose whether you want to represent them do you have to know that they are innocent or if you know they're guilty is it I don't know if that's, my my question is very clear, but it's sort of no. It, it's the it, it 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 is a very common question, and it's sometimes phrased rather differently. How can you represent somebody you know is guilty? But um, and the choice business, I think you know one has to approach it um, carefully because I don't choose in that sense. There is something called a taxi rank principle, whereby you're supposed to take the next one that comes. Okay. And because otherwise, if, if, you, if there's too much subjective um, assessment, people would only take p the cases that pay or something like that. Yeah. Which, of course, a lot of people do do that. They only do private work. And, and that is increasing because legal aid's dried up. Yeah. Public funding's dried up. And that's the campaign I've been waging for some years, along with others, to try and get people who can't afford it properly funded so they can you know, challenge whatever's wrong in their lives. Um, so I, I the, that that's the theory, whatever comes along. But actually, it, it's a little more self-selective because, uh, in my case, for I just give mine as an example, but I'm sure for others it's the same. I started off wanting to do cases with a political civil rights dimension. And so uh, a close friend of mine, he's now di died, unfortunately, but he was a solicitor. And we worked together in a drugs clinic in London. And so I started doing drugs work with him and, and ended up on the, on the, in the political arena because of legalization of cannabis was a big issue then. 
still is a, a big issue. But then he got approached by somebody who was a defendant, became a defendant in the Angrigate case. And he said, look, would you like to do this? So I, I obviously could have said no, but I said, yes, no, I would like to do it. But I didn't go and look for it. Yeah. Actually, I'm not allowed to do that. Um, uh, so you have to sit and wait. But And then once I did that case, and it was in the news a lot yeah. then, um, people say, oh, he did that. I wonder if he did this. So then they they would self-select. Yeah. Uh, and once I'd done the Price Sisters, then the Irish cases, once I'd done the Mangrove, or at least Frank Critchlow and a series of cases there, the Deptford Fire and so on, then, you know, they come to you. And they knew uh, that this is the sort of work I wanted to do. Yeah. The difficult cases are the difficult instances are that people say, well, this is all very fine. Supposing a member of the National Front approached you. I said, well, uh, that's very interesting. I, I think I know what I would do. But even more interesting, none of them ever have. And of course, they're not going to, are they? Mm. And they're not going to come to me because they know that my uh, abhorrence of what they and the in English Defence League and all the rest of, of what they get up to is a, a strongly held view. However, if one of them decided they did want to do that, <coughs> I would declare my inclination. I'd say to them, look, do you, do you really want me to do it? I will do it. Mm. And I will do it to the best of my ability such that I keep my personal views to one side, which you have to do anyway. Yeah. But I don't want you suffering a conviction and then thinking, oh, well, he didn't you know, pull all the stops out for me. But that's never arisen. Um, so, again, it, you, you get known for what, for the principles and values that you stand for. At least you do in, if you're doing civil rights work. If you're doing other work, which is commercial, straight commercial work, it matters less yeah. because, you know, companies will like you and decide they'd like to have you almost as their sort of standing counsel to advise on certain contracts. Well, I don't do that kind of right. work. Okay. So, But it's the same sort of thing happens there. They get, you know, uh, selected and then they stay on doing that job. Then they move to some other area of law where they get specialised in and so on. So... On a practical front, it's not a problem. Yeah, this is—I've always found that quite interesting. I thought if if you were selected to to represent someone, let's say that's that's completely opposite to you, and you say you would represent them, what the best deal would be, in, or the best outcome in that situation would be, you know, and how you'd—I don't know—I was brought up in a very—I um, don't know how would you say it—in like a very opinionated household, I guess. So for me, you know, what I believe—I mean, it's not me what I believe is a transitory thing you know could you can challenge it and when I get new information it will change uh potentially uh but the values that I hold true I think probably will remain and if it was a completely against that I think I'd probably have quite a tough time yeah you do have a tough time uh, and, and the more common one for me is not representing somebody whose views I uphold because they don't come to me so that sells itself are the cases where you're dealing with an extremely serious um, personal 
situation. It may be psychological or it may be physical and it may involve abuse and violence of a terrible kind. Mm. And you can barely look at the photographs or the photographic evidence in the case. And there are a lot of them. They don't dominate my life and they don't dominate everybody's life. But violence is, you know, palpable. It's just around the corner and it has to be contained and it has to be faced. But that I find difficult. Yeah. If you're representing somebody who is alleged to have done something, you know, dastardly that you think, oh, how could that happen? And you have to say, well, wait a minute, he's saying he didn't do it, or she didn't do it. Or if they did do it, uh, their mental responsibility is affected, and you're having to argue that. Yeah. So um, that they're the more they're the difficult ones. Yeah. And when you're representing, obviously, you've got. Uh, you said you sort of you get involved with the 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 people you're working with, rather than sort of having yeah. a standoff view. Just with the, with the idea of the lessons in life. When, when they're going through these you know, terrible times, you know, going through that process obviously is going to take a massive tax. Do, do, is there a pattern? Is there, a, is there something that, um, you know, with, with the idea that I, I wished I had, nobody says I wished I'd worked more and earned more money or I wish I'd spent more time with my loved ones. Is there a sort of pattern you see to their kind of, when, when they feel like something might be slipping away from them of what they grasp, sort of tighter? I think the pattern is often, if there is one, uh, and I don't think it's trite to say every case is different and you have to judge every case on its own facts, which is, you know, the very common approach judges place in front of juries to make an assessment. Mm. Um, you've got to be careful not to clothe the case with your own experiences too much. Um, but you do have to try and get inside the experiences of the person you're representing or judging yeah. as it, whatever it happens to be. But I think, and I see this in SOS particularly, it's very much a matter of the stresses that everybody's placed under. And some people explode and they explode in different ways because they can't contain the stress mm. that is placed on them particularly in a society which is populous. I mean, we have a huge population in a very small space. We're not the only ones who've got that, but, you know, that is a common element of modern life. We have a pressure to move on. Everything's moving such that you've got a saturated internet and information highway. And at the moment, you know, things are, are bursting everywhere. They can't cope. With it, which means, you know, and it comes back on the individual. You've got to cope with being bombarded with life. Yeah. And that means that you have to be prepared that there are, you know, weak links in, in everybody. Everybody's got them. And you have to recognize where they are and try and, for yourself, with the help of others, you, you know, recognize where they are and try and deal with them such that you don't explode yeah. um, and such that you don't end up, um, well, I suppose the extreme is either killing yourself because you've had enough or killing someone else because you've had enough of that yeah. or doing serious psychological damage to yourself or someone else. Yeah. 
So I think it's working out the stress lines and the fault lines and then recognizing that, you know, absolutely nobody's perfect and everybody's got it. And therefore, is this a case of somebody who has been drawn into something and overpowered by something? Or is this a case where there is a, a kind of other evil, a power at work in which somebody it can't really be explained in that way because it's so vicious it's got to be regarded as you know um well there's there's, there's a, a a series on at the moment um the undoing yeah it's hugh grant playing a serious role for a change um and uh he it's an American series uh, filmed in New York, but there's an English sort of dimension to it. And uh, Donald Sutherland's in it. And um, what is interesting is it, it, it's an old style retro whodunit. Yeah. But the whodunit bit is, or, or, or rather, what's, what, what is the it? The it is a woman whose head is smashed to pieces by somebody with a mallet. Yeah. Question, obviously, and here comes sort of Agatha Christie. All the characters are assembled. You've got them all there. You've got to work out what the pressures were that led to this. And there's a case in the middle of it or a court drama. And I think it's very well performed. And it does make you think again, because what is interesting about it is in the first episode, you think it, in the second episode, you think it's, right. and you, you switch yeah. because you think it's got to be, it's got to, so they don't, they give you clues, but not too many. You've got to work out from the character and the situation. Is this a jealous husband? Or is it a protective wife who's done this? Yeah. So that there are equal contenders without the evidence, just looking at it in terms of relationship and character. And it seems to me that's, you know, it's a life story. That's happening all the time. You're having to make assessments. And sometimes you make terrible assumptions yeah. uh, about people. Mm. And then, you know, prima facie ones, superficial ones. And you think after <laughs> What on earth made me think that? And, and so, actually, at the end of the day, you've got to look at yourself. Yeah, a bit of self And how you view people. So I, I think it's only, you know, well, I say it's only a series on at the moment. I mean, they have advertised it widely. And I, I think that they deserve to do so because they've made a good job of this particular story. Um, and they've made it very relevant to the present day and, uh, you know, tech a tech murder in a sense there's a lot of stuff going on on screen and so on so i i that, that that's it you asked about a pattern i don't i don't think there is a pattern other than the pressures and the stresses and how they how they impact and you know the same person can have a different reaction to the same stresses the following day I saw a wonderful quote that said um, that the same water that hardens a potato, uh, hardens an egg can soften a potato. <laughs> yeah. Bef I'm obviously conscious of your time. I just wanted to talk um, about SOS 
if if we can oh right um, yes because yes, actually yes. um in 2015 uh, a friend of mine who is a bit of a musical uh, mentor uh, took his own life and um and and since then i've been on uh, sort of a bit of a mission because i let i let music slide up for a while i burnt out um you know obviously being a musician for for you know, all of my life and then professional for many years i sort of burnt out um and it was really him that was behind me at a lot of the gigs I got and a lot of the things I'm proud of. And I thought to honor his, his memory, I've, I want to put together an album. And so I've been, I've been working on this for a little, for a little bit of time. Um, obviously not, not completely since 2015. I've had children in, in the meantime. So it's been, um, you know, things have been busy, but I've recently got back on it. And then, um, my mum mentioned, well, that's when Anna, Anna. That's when Anna committed suicide, 2015. Well, I realised I want to saw the date, and then, but yeah, I just wanted to talk a bit about SOS, just so that, you know people know what it is and and the sort of motivation. No, I'd like to do it because it means a great a great deal because the the event which triggered its formation is pertinent right now because Anna would have been. Uh, 50 i think on december the 21st so it's close yeah close to her birthday but not but i think taking her own life shook me up considerably because i was due to meet her uh, with yvette we were going to go down to london at a weekend i was in the middle of hillsborough the hillsborough inquest And I agreed with her. I knew there was something wrong, but I didn't know how bad it was. And um, it was, a lot was a lot of it was concerned with the job, but not all. And the fact that they were playing up, and she was made redundant. And in the way of big corporations, of course, they're not um, sensitive. They're not sen- they're not sensible either, and they're pretty ruthless. So she sort of learnt about it indirectly over a you know, a, 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 a bit of public communication by the management saying they were reconfiguring and everybody realised that her job and others were going to go. Yeah. So she learned the a bad way. So I thought, well, look, and then she had lots of other concerns as well. And I said, look, I think if I, if I come down, we can talk it through and see if we can sort something out that makes sense. But we may not be able to, let's, let's try and over the course, and, and, and Yvette heard the calls. To begin with, she's very concerned. And then in the week when I was going to go down on the Saturday, she, she killed herself on a Friday. <clears throat> on the Thursday or the Wednesday, I spoke to her. I spoke to her nearly every day. Not every, literally every day, but nearly every other day. Yeah. I remember ringing her and saying, uh, so, so you're right, you know, I'm, I'm still coming on. She said, yeah, Dad, stop worrying, I'll, I'm fine. And she did sound okay, and I thought, oh, all right then. Um, I, I said, I'll still come, I'll still come, we'll, we'll come down. She said, that's fine, I look forward to seeing you. And then, of course, you know, it was all over the following day, and she'd gone to the doctor, got prescribed drugs. Not that the drugs did it, she hung herself off her off the bathroom door at home mm. and I was wrong early in the morning uh, you know <clears throat> couldn't believe it could not believe it very angry <laughs> very angry 
And I've always remembered being angry and pummeling furniture and myself. Angry at her, actually, saying, you know, why did you do this? We could have, you know, and then angry with myself. And then you go through the anger. Well, bit, the and anger get... thing's horrendous. And, uh, you know, I ended up calling you know, Martin some names that I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. And it was just, yeah. and, and it was actually my wife that said, look, there's, you know, it, it was, it's intense. It's a very strange emotion. I remember walking around the room, walking, 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 walking around the room where we were staying um, up in Cheshire. And um, I couldn't get to Christa. And thank God Yvette was there. Unfortunately, and rarely, a, a lawyer friend had come up from London uh, for the weekend and he stayed. And I think without their support, I could have done something pretty stupid at that time. And... Obviously, we went straight down and we went to see Carlo, who's the husband, Italian husband. Yeah. And they're two boys. And two boys, two boys have got a very, very serious but rare blood disease. Right. And they have to have transfusions. Mm -hmm. And if they don't get them done within a time frame of a few minutes, um, they're dead. Is, this, so, is, this, is it routine or is it... Uh yeah as and when do, do they have a symptom uh, well have to get it they done? have to yes as and when sorry yeah. yeah you have to detect them going limp right and when they go limp you know that you've only got a short time to do something right. about it so living with that was pretty dreadful yeah. <clears throat> she'd had a stillborn as well i mean there were lots of factors yeah that contribute to situation as i'm probably in martin's case as well and i kind of I tried to work them out, but then in the end, I sort of reconciled myself to this by saying, because she left a note. And basically the note was said, I'm, I'm a failure. I'm not a good mother. It, he, she wrote basically to the boys saying, look, I love you immensely, but I don't think I, I can't do what's needed for you. Words to that effect. And, um, but it wasn't just about them either. It was, you know, a combination of things, stress, for God's sake, you know, losing a job, a good job she had, always worked for Reuters at one point, but it was, that was early and she wasn't working for them at this moment. And I think, you know, she really did feel that there wasn't much point in going on because she was a failure. And so I say to myself, well, you're not mad. Because uh, it's easy to write people off and say they're mentally disturbed and, and so they're not themselves. Well, she was herself. She'd worked out that, you know, perhaps erroneously and in a moment of panic, but it's her decision. And I think were she to be listening to all this, she'd say something like, look, Dad, stop worrying. I took the decision, just leave it now, move on, do other things. That led to SOS, because I just thought, I've got to yeah. do something. And it was because of the um, funeral and uh, reception for the hundreds turned up. I couldn't believe it. This tiny church in North London. Yeah. And then we went, um, well, it's a, not, well, not far from 
where you are now. Um, and then, then we went to this school on the North Circuit where, where she, her children went. And everybody went there and they all came up and they, to me and said, that was amazing what you said. I said, I didn't say anything amazing other than I found it very difficult to say anything. And she, they said, yeah, but you, you said you committed suicide. People don't talk about it. And I, we were so amazed that you said what it was. I said, and I had not thought about this. I just said, but that was what it was. Um, and so I, I don't, you know, I, don't, I hadn't perceived the stigma and the toxicity that goes with this term. And uh, of course, as soon as I thought about it, I thought, yeah, of course, of course, of course, was a criminal offence. Still is mm. if you assist and yeah. so on and so on and so on. And so... I'm trying to think if they at Martin's were they whether that was addressed the kind of elephant in the room. Yeah, well, that's how I've called I called it. I, I can't remember. I mean, there was a lot of emotions, of course, but well, that's what I called it—the elephant in the room. Exactly that. And so I said to Yvette, who she'd lost somebody a few months before, a close friend. I said, "We've we've got to get people at least talking about this. This is ridiculous." And I did a Newsnight interview that got quite a lot of publicity and people said yeah you're right you're right keep going keep going and i know there's other organizations like mind and samaritans and so on but i just felt even with them it still is there and the number of people who confess that they have kept it secret and not told anybody because they're ashamed because they blame themselves because they think they they contributed to the death so I, we started SOS on the basis that all we would do is facilitate people coming together from diverse backgrounds to get it off their chest, to talk about it. And it was intended to be for bereaved, obviously, but there are lots yeah. of organisations helping the bereaved. For those who have tried to commit suicide and failed, yeah. those who are thinking about it and those who are just interested. So you have a vast range of positions in these meetings. Now, nobody else does this, so it's not one-to-one. -one. It is now because we can't have the meetings at the moment. So Yvette has this hotline to help people who ring up. But we got people in the one room. It's a bit like Alcoholics Anonymous, I suppose. And then we get them to help each other. We say, look, we're, oh, not the, right, okay. we're not the experts. We're there because we've experienced it. But we want you to do what we're doing. And on the website, SOS, if you've looked at it, there's a film, which we're very proud of because it's still very relevant. And we got Ruby Wax to introduce it. And um, there are some very, very interesting, very compelling testimonies to do with Anna's death. So it's a bit like you want to compose a piece of music we did the film and then we've kept going since then and we've gone to you know prisons universities schools i was actually going to mention ruby wax because i was listening to an interview with her and she was talking about frazzled cafe right which well, is her yeah, she's, uh, oh you do know about it yeah so so she's been hosting she was hosting in cafes i believe where she lives in scotland but she's recently been doing it online yeah well that's very interesting because we've switched to online because we have to but um, I've forgotten how, had I met, maybe I'd met her, I don't know how we got to her. 
Yes, I, I, I had met her. I'd, I'd done an interview at her house um, for something else. Anyway, we said, would she was, I'd read a piece that she'd written about depression because she says, well, you probably know what her background is. Yeah. She says she suffers regularly. And, you know, people, again, have got to talk about it, stand up. And she, she was doing a tour of the country at the time, uh, talking about depression and getting people uh, themselves to talk about it and communicate with her. And so she introduced it. And um, <clears throat> as a concept, it took off yeah. because people had never countenanced it in quite this way. Mine doesn't do this. Samaritans don't do this. In fact, nobody else does this this bringing together and of course it's it's beneficial for the individual and beneficial for the place where they live beneficial for the place where they work yeah so um you know we we have managed to <laughs> infiltrate all sorts of places where others have not been and at the moment we've just got a campaign starting today uh, with little pin badges which are going to be sold in next if anybody can get to a, a shop, a next branch, mm. they're on sale to raise money for the charity. That's and, amazing. And, uh, well, I think it, it, the person most with most credit for this is Yvette. I mean, she she's kept it alive. I couldn't, you know, I have got a day job and I couldn't have done it. And uh, she's kept it alive and kept the, it was her idea to have the phone line in there. We tried doing it online chats, but that didn't work. So we thought, well, we'll have a hotline. Mm. But we don't do what the Samaritans do. We just thought, if somebody rings up, yes, they want someone to listen. But actually, they want someone to respond as well. Yeah. And the Samaritans are very careful about not suggesting anything. I understand that. But we do suggest some things, not, not in a judgmental. We're not trying to prevent suicide. We're not trying to encourage it. We're just saying, you know, think about what you're saying and how you've got where you are is this where you want to be and if you don't want to be are there people who can help you after there aren't people who can help you we try and take them through and Yvette does that very well and um it's making it's slow incremental but it's making a difference and you know we're we're waiting for the sort of big donation which we we've had one or two but basically it's Hand to mouth most most weeks we're trying to survive yeah well I, when i when i emailed her again it was a, f a few months ago she, she that she said i'm sorry for getting back late i was you know it's just me basically and i thought uh you know i, I didn't realize it is. and it's incredible and i see the stuff on instagram and various other social platforms that, she, that presumably she's putting out and i just think what, yeah. what a work rate you know absolutely incredible. yeah yeah well it's get it's getting to and i'm trying you know I want to go and get her off what she's doing at the moment. Um, yeah, the work rate is phenomenal. It's sapping on, uh, and on top of all the other things she has to cope with, including me. Um, so it's, it, it, I am amazed that she's managed to do as much as she, and she's got, you know, we've got, she plays snooker. She's really rather good at it. And she's now on the, um, seniors board of snooker english snooker and they are helping to sponsor us by wearing the badge and so on and we've got ourselves an association with the next door because we go and do s s seminars or we did or meetings gatherings 
at their factories throughout the United Kingdom. So we, we built up really a, a really a, a good sort of legacy of people mm. and organizations. And I think the basic problem at the moment is trying to find people who, who can back her up as part of the organization, if you like. I said, you can't go on doing it all yourself. Nice. You know, manning the phones and doing the admin and raising the money. So we're gradually getting more people on board, but you've got to pay for them. Yeah. And then you've got to raise the money to pay for them and yeah. so on. So it's a vicious circle, but it's working. It's, um, it is amazing. I, I think we, I keep saying to them, look what you've achieved. You know, somebody's sent money in from Australia or wherever, you know, so yeah. it's, it's, it's got itself what, on the map. And, and to keep that memory of her friend and your daughter as the driving yeah. force, that is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Um, there's always, well, so one question before, um, I let you go uh is always i just wonder if there was a period of time knowing what you know now a uh, period of time in your life you'd go back and give yourself some advice um <laughs> and because uh, i know yes. i know you know i'm i was 38 and uh last month and he you know I, I say even in that time i think you know you, you change quite a lot as you as you go along you have kids and and, and other responsibilities there's loads i would have told myself but I just always wonder if there was some advice that you would give your younger self or you'd like to give to somebody who's sort of starting out what it might be. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, how long have you got? <laughs> I mean, uh, here, here I am in sort of 80th year, so I've got a lot of memories and I'm still working and I'm very, 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 very grateful I don't take anything for granted. I'm grateful to my parents and to all the friends I've had along the way who've been incredibly understanding and supportive, and particularly the families, obviously, and the children and so on. So, you know, it's differed from time to time. It's a bit up and down. But, yes, there is – well, there's a difference between – there are moments when I would go back and give myself some strong advice – but then I, I don't, I, I've never regretted anything. So it's the Edith PF, you know, je ne regrette rien, because I do, I do that for a reason, because I think if you, if you spend time regretting, it is a, a very subversive and a, a demeaning almost feeling because it's it, it's taking away it's diminishing what you've tried to do and then you spend time being retrospective instead of prospective being negative rather than positive yeah. so i i don't i don't regret anything because i i it, it, it i know it can sound arrogant that you know you you approach everything using all the faculties and information you can now sometimes you misjudge it sometimes very badly. Uh, but you can't do more than you can do. I have to keep saying to Yvette, you can't do more than you're doing. You can't, you can't do it all. You can't do it all. So, so don't, you know, beat yourself up about what you can't do at this moment. You know, as long as you are making a major effort, as long as you are extending and reaching out to other people and thinking about other people, I think that is very important so to, to be conscious of a responsibility we all have to each other, not to absolutely everybody, but, you know, 
be perceptive so that if there's somebody in need, even a stranger, that you can do something about, not somebody, you know, in Southeast Asia you can't reach necessarily, other than possibly through the internet. So I, I think, you know, do not regret anything as long as you have. I mean, you know, I would regret if part of my life was obliterated because... I don't know, I've been doing too much drinking or something, or I'd uh, taken too many drugs, or I gambled. Oh, yeah, that's right. I was listening to this man today who's, you know, it was so sad I nearly stopped the car. I thought, and he, he'd, he, he, he was bored during lockdown. He had a job and all the rest, yeah. but he was furloughed and he was at home and bored. And he started gambling on some mega mega bet or something and you know his first or second bet and he won ten thousand pounds so you can yeah. imagine you go yeah there's the gateway and what the company did very very naughty but on the other hand you know what happens i suppose i don't bet but you know i probably would regret this he certainly regrets it and of course it wasn't sensible and you know he should have given himself some advice at the time and of course, he doesn't understand how he didn't do it. The company said, oh, you're very successful. My goodness me. You're obviously on a winning streak, young man. Don't know how old he is. Uh, would you like to win an iPad? You know, I go, yeah. win an iPad? Yeah. No, I wouldn't, actually. But he says to himself, yeah. Yeah. They said, well, hang on, hang on. Uh, <clears throat> so they didn't pay him out. Yeah. They said, what we'll do is we've checked and you're, you're obviously a genuine person. So, yeah, you're, we, we owe you 10 grand. But, you know, we can use your winnings to help you fund, you know, our competition for an iPad. And, of course, you can see what's coming. Yeah. And logically, you'd think an iPad. Well, I could, how many could I get for £10,000? Yeah, well, that's what the, present, the presenter of uh, the programme today said exactly that. He said 600 quid is what you sacrifice for it. And he said, you could hear him saying, don't tell me. Because he lost the whole amount inside one week. Oh, gosh. And what well, worse, he's in debt because mm. he tried to raise money to get it back. Right, yeah, of course, yeah. So he owes four or 5,000. And you could hear in his voice, he's been devastated. An, or, an ordinary guy, you know, perfectly sensible. And I think if something like that had happened, then I probably would regret. And if something like that had happened, I probably wished I'd given myself advice um, in a strong way. But, you know, we this is the thing about stresses on people's lives and the way they react and how they deal with it. Well, you know, it'll take him some while, I guess, to accommodate the tragedy of that, in a, in a sense. And he's given up gambling, and I hope he doesn't have a relapse. So I think, it, it, so I don't have the regrets of anything, nothing like that has happened. I'd be very, very lucky, and I haven't been subjected to a catastrophe of life, other than, you know, Anna, yes, but I, I mean, you know, no fire, no flood, mm. uh, and uh, I've always had access to food and a roof. So I'm incredibly lucky. Yeah. However, I've made mistakes. Uh, quite a lot of them. And I do often think, well, if only I'd said to myself, you know, before 
well, I suppose this is the piece of advice. You, you get angry, right? Yeah. Well, I do anyway. And I sometimes sit down and think, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a letter to you. I'm part of the old order writing a letter <laughs> to the, to the Times or not to the Times, to, to the Guardian or something, <laughs> or, or the organisation that have pissed me off. Yeah. And, and then I, I've learned hard way. The best letters are the ones you don't send. And the best advice I try to give myself is when I'm about to explode and I don't, I'm not successful at this, uh, uh, but quite a lot of the time I manage it, but a lot of the time I don't. You only have to explode two or three times. You can be, you know, really difficult for other people to have to handle it. So um, anger management, if you like, is extremely important. So I, I, I say to myself, I, I nudge myself, I say, don't send the letter. Just wait, because you've probably got the wrong end of the stick. Right. And uh, yes, I have got the wrong end of the stick, or I haven't allowed for something. And I need more time. You need to give yourself space and time before you take a decision about anger or, or a decision which is life changing. Yeah. And I made enough of those. And, and God, you know, yes, yeah. you do have to think. You may still make the same decision. It's not, I want to give myself advice so that I don't do it. You, you may want to give yourself the space and the time that you're trying, we're trying to do an SOS, is to give people space and time to think about what it is they're going through. And I think that's, that would be the main advice is a precautionary aspect not that it necessarily changes the decision but it gives you space and time so it's giving yourself space and time away from the pressure that you've got at the minute which happens to cause you to take a decision which could be wrong and could have enormous ramifications uh, not good ones either for yourself or someone else so i think it, it's that really and the same applies to cases you know i have to i read something very quickly I have initial thoughts, and a lot of people say, always be guided by your first thoughts. I always <laughs> I say, don't. Don't be guided by your first thoughts or your initial instincts. Nothing wrong with an instinct, because, you know, that could be engendered by the circumstances which has given birth to this feeling. Yeah. So you have to stand back from it. Difficult, difficult. And then you have to say, to yourself actually first it's actually treating yourself with respect yeah and then you start treating other people with respect and then you know not to harbor a grudge out of all of it uh or suppress something you need to tell somebody you know tell them and say look and later if you've made a mistake you say sorry immediately yeah and i didn't used to do that i used to hang on for ages and then I'd, you know, make a meal out of it. And, you know, my father was like that. You know, he, he'd simmer for weeks. Yeah. And then, you know, and then it would all come out. I, th I don't want to be like that. You know, so it's, it's the immediacy of thinking and giving yourself space and then not being too harsh on yourself, giving yourself the space and the time and the respect, then you do it for other people. That doesn't mean to say you become a doormat for everybody. You have to know where your parameters are. Yeah. But that way you do work out where the parameters are. So that would be 
another long-winded advice. I, oh, I, I like that. I like the um, don't be guided by your by your first thought. I think that's really that's something yeah. I'm going to wear as a badge. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the other one I always come up with is always do tomorrow yeah. what you could have done today. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's true <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you live with the regrets as well. Good advice. Yeah, there are only sort of silly axioms, really, but. Sorry, Michael, thank you so much for your time. It's okay. Anyway, great to talk to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm.